Our scripture for today is from Ephesians chapter 4. I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Many of us have heard the saying, Rome wasn't built in a day. Interestingly, Rome didn't fall in a day either. I've always found it fascinating to learn about the decline of the Roman Empire, not to oversimplify an incredibly complex situation, but the Roman Empire ended up having to divide itself in half, essentially because it got too big for its britches. And some of this this barreling toward division and things like that was going on right around the time of Jesus. So because it ended up having to divide itself in two and because of all kinds of other reasons, the empire ended up collapsing from the inside out. Something interesting to me about why this happened, why the empire ended up collapsing, is how Rome's treatment of migrants impacted its decline. Now stay with me before you think I'm going on some sort of political tirade. I'm really not. This is interesting. So in the late 300s, the Huns invaded Europe. And their invasion sparked this mass migration of people. These people didn't have anywhere else to go. So they pressed further and further into the borders of the Roman Empire. These displaced peoples were not the root of the problem. The root of the problem was the Huns. So one of the reasons that the Roman Empire was so successful was because they allowed people groups living in the empire to basically keep their religions and their cultures, the things that mattered the most to them, as long as they paid the empire their dues. This was a practice called syncretism, and it was wildly successful early in the empire's expansion. So at another time in the empire's history, they might have viewed these displaced people coming across their borders as assets in defeating their enemy, the Huns. But they didn't do this. By the time the Huns invaded Europe and the Visigoths started pressing into the Roman Empire, seeking to to coexist peacefully with the Romans, the empire had ended its practice of syncretism and instead had become even more violent and more demanding of people to give up what mattered the most to them 
in order to demonstrate allegiance to the empire. So that's, that's why we start seeing things like emperor worship being demanded more and more of people in the empire. So the Romans allowed the Goths to cross over their borders, but rather than embracing this as an opportunity to defeat the Huns, the Romans were incredibly brutal and cruel to the Goths. We have these stories from ancient historians of the Romans forcing starving Goths to trade their children into slavery in exchange for dog meat. So spoiler alert, this did not work out well for the Romans. Side note, cruelty and exclusion are not really a great growth strategy. This completely backfired on the Romans. They ended up creating a significant enemy within their borders. The Goths begrudgingly served in the Roman military and participated in Roman society, and eventually it was the Goths who rose up and sacked the city of Rome in 410. I don't have enough fingers and toes to count the number of times I have heard people say to me, I just don't understand what is happening to our country. In my adult life, I think I first picked up on this sentiment after 9-11 and the invasion of Iraq in 2003, which was something that remains deeply controversial. I remember riding in taxi cabs and listening to the news in other countries and hearing a very different perception of America's actions in the world than I had ever heard before. What is happening to our country? I felt that feeling again in December 2012 after the Sandy Hook school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. I remember sitting in the, in the rocking chair in Catherine's nursery when she was a few months old, rocking her long after she had fallen asleep and counseling people on the phone as they cried and agonized about the six and seven-year-olds who died in that shooting, who maybe hadn't been baptized. People were upset and worried. Were these children in heaven? How could this happen? Who are we becoming? How can I send my babies into school in a world like this? What is happening to our country? I had this feeling again when I was in seminary, and I got to listen to vigorous and thought-provoking legal, ethical, and theological debate following the shooting deaths of Trayvon Martin in 2012, and then Michael Brown in August of 2014, and finally, 12-year-old Tamir Rice in November 2014. And really, since that time, this question, in my own experience as a pastor, has surged continuously. What is happening to our country? I have some really good news to share with you today. 
The churches who first read Ephesians, which was a letter that was written to be circulated to many churches, they had this same question. They lived in a time of even more chaos and violence and change. I know that they cried and agonized about what was happening around them. Revolts and rebellions, poverty, change, power and authority, taxation, freedom, corruption. They could empathize with all of this. So I think there's some things in Ephesians that can help us. I also have some bad news, and maybe it's not so much bad news as hard truth. I talked earlier about how the Roman Empire missed an opportunity to turn things around for themselves. Well, that sort of happened in the church, too, about the time Ephesians was circulating. The writer of Ephesians is basically saying, hey, guys, all of this that we've built, it doesn't have to fall apart. Look, there's still a place for Christ followers in Judaism. There is still a place for Gentiles in Messianic Judaism. You don't all have to think or behave the same way. So all these barriers that you're putting up, just remember, Jesus got rid of those. Those are not the point. The point is Christ. The bad news, or the hard truth, whatever we want to call it, is that the early church ended up not getting it. So by the year 135, which was probably about 40 or 50 years after Ephesians was written, Christianity had almost completely severed from Judaism. This was not at all on the radar of the first Christians. It was not at all the intention They did not set out for that to happen, but it happened. I don't think that this has to be the case for us as Christians, as citizens, and specifically for the church. I believe that we can get this because God believes that we can get this. I don't think everything has to fall apart. It's interesting because the Christ of the later epistles, like Colossians and Ephesians, is no longer just the Jesus who carried a cross, taught as a rabbi, this sort of weird and radical guy who went from village to village healing the sick and feeding the hungry. The Christ of the later epistles is not just a body or even a resurrected body. It's a cosmic metaphysical force. And what Ephesians tells us is that this force is present in all things, holding everything that is together. It is the force in the world that is working all things into God's dream. So when the writer says there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all, he doesn't just mean one in your Bible study group, one in your church, 
one in your denomination, one in your religion, or your political party. The writer means one, period. All of it is held by Christ. Everything we can see, touch, smell, feel, hear, and think. Christ holds it all. But the people of the early church were suspicious of this. And they couldn't ever really embrace it. It wasn't moderate enough for them. And maybe it's a little too much for us, too. I know that we're all asking ourselves right now, how in the world am I going to be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with other people in love? It's tough because our brains prefer difference. Our neural pathways can really only tolerate a certain level of complexity before we have to start categorizing and putting things into boxes and bins in our heads. And then when we get stressed, we start excluding. We start otherizing. We start thinking of ourselves as better or more important than other people because it helps us feel better. And when we're really stressed, we get dug in, we lash out, and we resort even to severing our relationships, even to violence. And friends, we have got to be aware of our problem with violence. So this is the thing about Christ. Christ changes us from the inside out. Christ changes our thinking, our feeling, our moving around in this world, the way we treat ourselves, the way we treat others. Rather than closing us down or cutting us off, Christ tends to open us up. This is who God is. God's love is ever-expanding. Ephesians 3 says something really interesting that I think can maybe help us get to the place where in a difficult time like this, when tensions are running high, we can be more humble, we can be gentle, we can be patient, we can bear with one another in love. Ephesians 3 uses this word mystery a bunch of times as it talks about Christ, this mystery of Christ. Christ's love and unity isn't about exclusion or punishment, it's also not about unanimity. And in the church, we tend to really want unanimity. Christ's love, in fact, doesn't really care all that much about what makes us different. As the early believers really wrestled with this, they discerned that maybe God wasn't so worried about what made Jews and Gentiles different. 
And they called this a mystery because they didn't know what else to call it. God is up to something here. It's blowing our minds, and so we're going to just call it a mystery. And friends, we are still trying to believe this mystery. This thing we can't really grasp or fit into any of our mental or emotional boxes. The mystery of how the point isn't what makes us different. The point is Christ. One. And since Christ is in all and holds all things together, then we need to be about the business of finding Christ, seeing Christ in all things, all people. And we need to be about the business of building up this body, this mystery, Christ, in all we do. Not just inside the church walls, not just at mission projects. Christ asks a lot more of us than just a few hours a week on our calendar. What we are hearing so powerfully right now is the myth that we are our politics and the myth of a win-lose scenario. These two myths are vying for our hearts and our minds and our souls. And that's going to intensify a lot over the next three weeks. I want to encourage you to pray with me that we can be free from these myths because they are destructive. They are not what is deepest and truest about us or about God. If you are watching this and you are a person who has chosen to be a Christ follower, here are a few encouragements I want you to take with you today. Our identity is not our politics. Our identity is in Christ. Christ is not working for a win-lose scenario in this election or in the universe. Christ is working for a win-win because within Christ, there are no losers. If this makes you feel uncomfortable, I want you to know that it makes me incredibly uncomfortable too. It's inconvenient. Paul Marshall puts it really well when he says, as churches work toward the realization of unity, there's a question that's going to come up over and over again. Which of our own preferences do we value more highly than the experience of this gift of unity that God wants to give us? To what degree do we desire less unity than God intends? In moments like these, we have to ask ourselves what we're willing to give up in order for Christ to grow in us. In order for Christ to grow in the world. It may require us to give up some things that are really hard for us 
to give up. And I'm not just talking about you, I'm talking about me too. Things like needing to be right, putting up a fight, thinking that our thinking can save us. We might have to give up otherizing those people who believe or think or act differently than we do. And we might have to give up lulling ourselves to sleep when what we really need is to wake up. The only ruler that Christians have, the only measure of how we are doing is love. And not love the feeling or the noun, but love the verb, the action. Are we loving the people in our lives more today than we did yesterday? Are we loving our neighbors more today than we did yesterday? Are we loving our enemies more today than we did yesterday? Are we speaking the truth in love to ourselves, to each other, to power more today than we did yesterday? Are we yearning for and seeking God, the reality of love, more today than we did yesterday? One of the big questions for Christians right now is, are we going to let love rule us? Are we going to let that be our identity? Even if it means giving up stuff that makes us really uncomfortable. Even if it means letting go of control, letting go of rightness, letting go of hatred, letting go of the dividing walls in between us and our neighbors. The question is, are we willing to let love break us? Are we willing to trust that love is going to build us up? One heart, one mind, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all, in all. This is who you are, child of God. As you go about your life this week, I hope that you can remember, I hope that I can remember that there are people around us who are hurting and who are lost in ways that we could never imagine. They are looking for light and for hope, just like we are. So this week, with humility and gentleness and boldness, let's show our hurting world what love can do. Amen.